Let me call your attention now to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and we'll get started. Let's look at the passage. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I've recommended a, a commentary to go along with this uh, class and oftentimes I'll use it. Anybody have that commentary? All right, I didn't consult it for this one, for this lesson, uh, mainly because it just wasn't any good. It wanted me to cover from chapter 7 to like chapter 9 or something. It's like too much, too much text. So what I'd like to do is just take these 10 verses. And let's just spend the time together tonight looking at the 10 verses uh, and then sort of just talking it through. Let me read it and then we'll go back and talk about it. <clears throat> Everybody there in Ecclesiastes 7? Okay. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of a fool. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It's pretty tough things in that passage right there, isn't it? Let's pray about it, and then let's talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we trust your providence, a smiling providence, a frowning providence, a hard providence, an easy providence, a kind providence, a difficult providence. We trust it all. We pray that you would use every, every event, every circumstance, to draw us in faith closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mr. Hegler, is that you going off there while I'm praying? Mm, all right, okay. I, I, there, I don't think since the invention of... No, sorry, baby. I, I don't think since the invention of cell phone, I have stood in front of a group of people and not had one go off. One time I was preaching, my own went off. So don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Let's talk about suffering and sanctific sanctification. Suffering and sanctification. Why do we go through hard times? How does God use the hard time? Across the top, you will see suffering and sanctification. And I'm just going to say it like this. In Jesus, when you're a Christian, in Christ, suffering is actually part of you becoming more like Christ. Suffering is part of your sanctification. God uses that. It is a a tool in the hand of God. It is the handmaiden of that person that's growing in Jesus. So while you're in the middle of it, it is terrible. We shouldn't look for suffering. We shouldn't want to suffer. 
But we should recognize that this is something God uses to make me more like Christ. I'd like to use this passage and see if we can, see if we can think it through correctly. So let's look at some instructions in suffering. I'll take the big chunk, verses 1 through 6, and let's just sort of walk through their, their little uh, sort of couplets. So verses 1 and 2 go together, and I'll just say it like this. Inner character is more vital, I didn't know how to say it, so I just said it like this, than outer fragrance. Did a light just go off? Okay. Whatever happens in this room, even if I call attention to it, y'all ignore it, all right? First point is instructions for suffering, inner character. Who you are on the inside is better than who people think you are, more important. Look at the word play in verse 1. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. So there's a word play that's written in Hebrew. The Hebrew for name is the word shem, S-H-E-M. The Hebrew for oil is the word shemen. S-H-E-M-E-N. Shem, Shemin. And the way it's written, it's written to call attention to how it's rhyming. So it's a little bit of a poem there. And that word name is a reputation that flows out of your character. And it's better than momentary fame. So who you are known, who you are known as, what your name represents, is a reflection of your character. <clears throat> so you live in this community, you go to this church for five, six, seven, ten years, and over the course of time, those that are closest to you, they know you. Those that don't know you, they might be a step or two removed. They've heard your name and know about you. And so your character has given way to a reputation. In fact, verse 2 presses a little further. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning, to a funeral, to go to a house where everybody's crying. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. It gets pretty serious right there. So what has been said in verse 2 is, Something that does not make sense to most people. And really doesn't naturally make sense to me. So it's better for you to go to a funeral on a Friday than go to a birthday party on a Friday. That's what verse 2 is saying. Why? Well, because an inner character, it, it's, more, it's more important, right? And a funeral, a funeral. Not a, not a rowdy birthday party, as fun as that is. A funeral is where the ultimate questions about life are pondered. Anytime death comes up, it, it's, it stops us. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, largest seminary in the world. Right now, it's in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, the, the largest number of Men being prepared for pastoral ministry is happening right now at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the history of Christianity. So I'm on the board of trustees there at Southern Seminary. Al Moeller is the president. I'm the vice chairman of the board. Two weeks ago, I was at the trustee meeting, and uh, during that meeting, 
there is an older lady who's also a trustee. There are 50 of us in this room, and we're sharing prayer requests. And Miss Nina said that the day before yesterday, her 57-year-old son dropped dead of a heart attack. So, so the reaction you just had. That, that's what, that's the reaction in the whole room. When that comes up, we all of a sudden sort of feel the, the gravity of it, right? We, we think, I mean, verse 2 says, the living, what will happen is they'll lay it to heart. You see that in verse 2? Let me show it to you. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living actually think about it. That's what happened. At that trustee meeting, that's what happened just right here. It, it's, what happened when, it's what happens when you go to a funeral. You don't mean to. But even if you are sad for the family that's lost a loved one, at some point in the process, you can't help but think about your, yourself. Especially as you get a little older. You get a little older, you start getting taps on the shoulder. Right, I cut my goatee down uh, today. And looked in the sink, and it's a whole lot of gray hair sitting there. Jimmy, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. You get that at the barbershop, don't you, Jimmy? So, I mean, you, or you, you wake up with a pain you didn't know you had, or they're just little taps, right? And they're reminders. Death makes us, death makes us think about life. In fact, I think I put a passage in the, in the, in the handout, Psalm 90. We've got some Bible drill people. Let's flip to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, about verse, yeah, I put 12 there, but let's back up a little bit. Let's make it 10, 11, and 12. I don't know what. Let's make it verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. It's all good, so let me, I have to cut it off somewhere. Let me start in verse 9. For all our days pass away under, this is a prayer to the Lord, under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength, 80. Or there's some remarkable people at Hicker Cove, 90. Yet their span, even if you live to 90 or 100, yet their span is but toil and trouble. This is what our life is made up of. Toil and trouble, they are soon gone. And here's the hymn, this is where it comes from, and we fly away. Did you put that up there, Christine? You're so fast, Christine. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath, your wrath according to the fear of you? So here is verse 12, where I wanted to get you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to think it through. It's good for us to think it over. You don't want to be morbid. You don't want to sit around thinking about death all the time. But it, it, it is good and right, and God uses it for us to ponder those things that we have sympathy for a person that's lost a loved one, and then we think about ourselves. And we start to think, okay, I, I need to do something with what I've been given. That something is not the American dream. That something has to do with how we honor the Lord. Every single funeral anticipates our own. So the next time you go to a funeral, sit there and think, oh, you know what? I could be next. 
Or maybe you won't remember to do that by the time you go to the next funeral. Tonight, when you lay down in your bed, you will lay down at some point for the very last time. Every night when you lay down, you're actually practicing dying. Look, I just want to be encouragement to you. I just want to build you up. Every time you lay down, you're practicing dying. Every morning when you get up, you're practicing the resurrection. So you got a nice little, there's some, there's some positive to it. Get your night, good night's sleep. Get up in the morning, you're practicing one day when the Lord will call us and we'll be raised from the dead. It's good for us from time to time to think about that. Okay, so... That inner character part, let's go to the next one down there, uh, B. Sorrow. Let's talk about sorrow. Sorrow can be just like medicine. Sorrow. Most medicine tastes bad, but it's good for you. Sorrow can be like medicine. Let me take you to verse uh, 3. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow. That is not what most sort of uh, shallow, kind of chirpy Christianity wants to tell you that laughter's better, but the Bible says that no, sorrow's better than laughter. So, because through a sadness of face, the heart is made glad, that should probably be translated, through sadness of, of face, the heart is made right, made better. See, a man who's looked or a woman who's looked death in the face, you might have your inner life transformed for the better. We, we've forgotten, in the Christian tradition, we've forgotten how important the very end of life is and how important it is in Christianity to think those things through. One of the reasons we have a funeral service. One of the reasons, um, I don't think, that, let me put a parenthesis here. I don't think cremation is a sin. I certainly don't. I think we lose something, though, when we don't follow through and bury a body. But it's not dogmatic. I'm not saying it's a sin. It's certainly not. Uh, my parents, I think, want to be cremated. Uh, if they die at the same time, I probably won't cremate them. Don't tell them that. <laughs> but if one of them is alive, then I'll probably have to do what they say. But anyway, that's a family matter. But Christian burial for 2,000 years has been a reminder from the earth we came to the earth we were put, and then there is a resurrection, a resurrection of the body. Cremating is not a sin. It doesn't make it. God resurrects those bodies too. But we miss something. When I pastored my first church, when would, someone would die, we'd lay the body out, open the casket. Sometimes... I've only did it twice. Sometimes they would have the wake where you would want to sit up with the body. I don't know where that body's going to go, but you sit in there with it all night, all night, sit there. Uh, you come by and you walk by the body and pay, the, pay your respects, and you, what you're doing is not only think about the person, you think about yourself. At my second church, Thompson Baptist Church in Amid County, Mississippi, uh, whenever someone died, the... They would, ha they would dig the grave um, with a tractor, and then once the body was laid in the grave, uh, the chairman of the deacons would go over to the pump house and get eight or ten shovels, and all the men of the church would stand around and 
cover up the grave. It would be just a physical reminder. In fact, there was some of that gallows humor. They would say to one another, hey, I'm going to be throwing dirt in your face one day. You know, that sort of thing. But it's a reminder of that this is where we're going to be. And sorrow can be like that kind of sobering, thinking through medicine. In times of, of tears is a good time to think about direction, about what's next, about how I can honor God with my life. So I would press that a little further and just bring you down to uh, C and say it like this, that smart people, smart people don't waste it. You don't waste your suffering. Everybody here is going to have some level of suffering at some point. You may be even in it right now. So we're all in it. The worst thing we can do is resent it and ask why and why and why. Smart people ask God, how do I honor you in this? How is this useful? Let me show it to you in verse 4. <clears throat> the heart of the wise, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or laughter, the heart. So what is the heart? The heart is the center of our attentions, the center of our thoughts. It's the center of our understanding. It's the center of our memory. And, and so having your heart in the house of mourning, where there's weeping, is for the wise person. Death is the object of the wise person's reflection. You don't want to be a fool. You want to be wise. So it's good for you from time to time to not be morbid. You don't want to be morbid. But it's good for you to think about it. You will one day die. And that thought will motivate us. It informs us. It, when you think like that, it will help you focus. It helps you not waste time. How many people here know the name of Count Zinzendorf? Zinzendorf? Anybody know the name Count Zinzendorf? The Moravians were the first Protestants. They were before the Protestant Reformation, before the Lutherans. John Huss led that, uh, the Bible alone, out of Eastern Europe. A hundred years later, Martin Luther would pick it up, but John Huss was the first, and his group was the United Brethren. The Moravians came out of that and um, made it to sort of Eastern Germany, a very wealthy man named Count Zinzendorf. He took the Moravians onto his land. They built a village there and he supported them. He became a hero of the Moravian church. The Moravians settled in Pennsylvania and also in North Carolina. <clears throat> and Count Zinzendorf said that our calling, Christian calling, is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. We take that, and a lot of times we want to build a legacy for ourselves. We want to have, make sure our name is remembered. We want to have the right, want to have the right uh, tombstone. I, when I die, I want it to be the, the funeral. I hope that it's raining. Um, hope everybody's miserable. And I, want, I, I don't want a plaque in the ground like the tombstone. But who, I mean, I have to go research 
on Ancestry.com just to track my ancestors 100 or 150 years earlier. That's not that far away. To think back, we don't remember maybe your great-grandfather or at least what their names are, great-great. You might know it now because Ancestry.com, but you wouldn't know it without that. And, and the point is that we, we don't put our, our thought in or we're building a legacy we put our thought in that which is important. What is it? What matters? And I think Count Zinzendorf has it, has it right that we preach the gospel and then trust it when we die and be forgotten because our job is to, to reflect glory on the Lord. So John, how about, you might know the name John Knox. You know the name John Knox? Okay, any of you used to be Presbyterians, you probably know John Knox. John Knox came up in that age of Reformation in the early 1500s. He spent some time on the continent. There he ran into John Calvin. He took those things he learned there. Uh, once things died down after Bloody Mary, he, he escaped persecution. And he went to Scotland. He's the one, give me Scotland or I die. And John Knox is the leader of the English Reformation in Scotland. It's why we have Presbyterians today. John Knox. Saw a picture the other day. Uh, you can't find his grave. There's a parking lot that's been paved over where they've buried him. And in parking lot uh, number 23, there's a plaque. And I think a Toyota 4Runner parks over John Knox now every day. Never knowing that under that Toyota 4Runner is this man that led the end. And the point is, preach the gospel, die. You see, life is not about us. Right? Your, your life is not about you building, you getting, you growing, you becoming, you connecting. Life is not about you and I. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about you reflecting God's glory. God's glory. How do you give glory? How does your life adorn? How does your life make the gospel look good? The, and, and the text here in verse, um, verse 4, the fool, on the other hand, is, is blind to spiritual issues. The fool is somebody that cares about the things of the day, that, 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 that gets caught up in the entrapments. And look, we have a whole lot of things that can help us be foolish today. So easy to be, to be tempted into just foolishness and not even know it. Get up in the morning... And I've got this brand new coffee maker that uh, has, an, uh, it has an alarm. In other words, it, it will start making coffee before you get out of bed. So you can go in the kitchen and the coffee's already made. Now, I haven't figured out yet how to program it right. <laughs> Connie likes a little small cup of Keurig, and I like a big pot of coffee. And this one's got everything built into one. So hers is working good. I don't have mine working, um, I don't have mine working yet. So I go in and push the button, and the coffee starts making, and I might check the news on my phone. And if I'm not careful, if I don't watch it, if I go to social media first, that starts eating in my time, and I get carried away with things that don't actually matter and don't first go to the Bible. Verse 4 says that the fool is just preoccupied with fun, right? Verse 4, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You're looking for the, the next thing that's going to be entertaining. It's going to be enjoyable. 
Isn't that where even the word amusement comes from? Ah, to not and muse, think, to not think. Smart people don't waste suffering. I have a book I'd like to recommend. Did I recommend this last week? Was I here last week? Was Brian here? Y'all got out at 7.10 or something? Who, who, who taught last week? Was it Mike? Okay. Um, this book, the name of it is Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. This is a helpful book uh, when it comes to praying through suffering or even depression. Uh, and la- the... the the word he uses is lamenting. In other words, praying with hope, not that things are going to get better, but praying with hope in the goodness of God regardless of how things go. It's a great, it really is, I just can't recommend, I, I've read a few chapters in it, and it actually altered how I pray in the morning. It was helpful to me. And uh, this book is The Prayers of Jesus. I'm not through it yet, so I'm not ready to recommend it. But so far it's pretty good. Those two are, are not, not those two, not those two. Just, uh, I'm not ready for the second one yet. The first one. Okay, let me go to D. D, everybody needs. Everybody needs accountability. I'd like to add on top of that. Everybody needs accountability and real encouragement. So everybody needs the accountability part. So you need, you need somebody checking upon you. And, hey, did you read the Bible today? Or, hey, look, that, I think that's sin in your life. Or, hey, you need to check that. So everybody needs accountability, but the counterpart is true as well. Everybody also needs real encouragement. Let me show it to you in verse, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. It's better that somebody comes up to you and tells you the things that are wrong. There's a rebuke, things you're doing wrong, and someone you respect. You see from their life, you know them to be a, a man or a woman of great character, and they say to you, this is, this is a, a, a blind spot in your life. You need to check that. It's better to have that rebuke than just to be told all the time that, you know what, you're just so great. As much as I would prefer that. The other is actually better for us. There are a couple of places um, I'd like to... Did I I list on the outline scriptures? Let's go to Proverbs chapter 9. Did I put chapter 9? So back up just a little bit to the left. Proverbs 9. And really, Proverbs um, is a great place to go. I try to read a proverb a day that corresponds with, with the day of the week. Uh, And usually that proverb will help me pray for myself. And then also, I have two sons. It helps me pray for those boys or uh, for people I know that need guidance. Proverbs is a great prayer guide. In Proverbs chapter 9, I'll take you to verse 7. Some of you have felt this right here. You've lived out verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. You've said something to somebody, maybe a child or a relative or a friend close, and you told them, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and they shouted at you. Who are you to judge me? Who do you think you are? 
Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Remember the story in 1 Kings, Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam comes to power, and Solomon's advisors come to Rehoboam and say to him, listen, if you will back off a little bit off the people, we've seen what your father did, and we've been with him a long time, we know these people, if you'll give them just a little breathing room, they'll serve you forever. Rehoboam said, all right, give me a day or two to think about it. And he went with his fraternity brothers. Got all his friends from when he was a kid. And said, what do you guys think we ought to do? They don't know anything about the people. And they gave him advice. And he didn't listen to the counsel of the wise. And ended up in a civil war that was the entire history of Israel. How about Nathan when he went to David? Remember that, right? David and Bathsheba, terrible sin. This is before Solomon was born. And Nathan comes and gives him the whole. If you go and read the passage, it, it wasn't just thou art the man. Nathan stayed with him and shepherded him and told him about the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, what the Lord is going to do to restore. Hey, every, everybody here, every one of us, I don't know what you've got in your life, you need someone, whether it's uh, organized accountability or if it's natural accountability in the body of Christ, it's what the church is for, it's, it, the congregation is for, it's why we do baptisms in front of the congregation, it's why if you go to a wedding and we put two Christians up, we put them in front of the congregation and they are saying to the church that has gathered, to, the, to one another, to God, we'll stay together. It's, it's accountability. Congregational life is we actually are in one another's lives. Everybody needs accountability. And real encouragement. All right, letter E. Suffering. Suffering. Helps you be real. Suffering helps you be real. You go through a hard time, you get a little taste. We would say it like this. Walk a mile in somebody's shoes. Go through a hard time, you get a little taste of the difficulty. It's going to make you more compassionate to other people. Have a hard time with something. Um, it's going to help you be much more humble about something. Suffering helps you be real. Verse six. Look at the verse six is a pun. I need to get back to verse six. Ecclesiastes. Verse six. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. So if you were to take that first part and translate it, one translator said it like this, um, like, like nettles crackling under kettles. I don't know, you can't get the really force of it, but so thorns are dried out, really rapidly burning fuel. It's like, um, it's like a Christmas tree. Right now in my backyard, I still have a Christmas tree I've not burned. It's been so dry, you know, I didn't want to, so it's finally rained, so I'm probably going to do that tomorrow night at my house and just light the thing, and you've seen them, right, go up, they just, just blow up, and then it's over. Easily put out. So it's, it's superficial, it doesn't last. It's a flash. And that's the idea here, is that that's a flash. Verse 6. The laughter of fools, it's vanity. The entertainment, it's just vanity. 
superficial. And the superficiality of a fool is vanity. So with that in mind, we've, we've gone 1 through 6. I'd like to take verses 7 through 10 and give you four. There are four dangers to be aware of. I'll just go through them very quickly. Part of it is observation. Part of it is what I see in the Bible. Verse 7, verse seven money and power change people. It hap- it, it hap- we've felt it. We've seen it. Money and power change. That's what verse 7 says. Remember, verse 7, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, wisdom literature, sometimes it's prescriptive, sometimes it's descriptive. Verse 7, uh, the, writer had, the preacher said, okay, this is what I've seen in life. Here's descriptive. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe, a wad of money, corrupts the heart. Changes people. I think we've seen that uh, in the last little bit here, uh, even in our own Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I think we've seen that with, there are three preachers that I know, two of them I know personally, three of them I've been with before, that I happen to see on social media, they were actually promoting a book written by a known female prosperity preacher, Paula White. Three respected preachers that, I mean, I know their lives, I know their ministry, I know that they believe they're Orthodox Christians. Why would they do that? That's my question. Because you've you got, you got people in your church looking to you, they're going to take your recommendation. One of the reasons I recommend books, because I think they're going to be helpful. I, I hope to never recommend something that is, that is heretical. And I think probably there's money involved. Money, it changes. So, so that's, that's from current day. If you like history, go back to Napoleon Bonaparte. Go to Napoleon. I, just, I, I use him because I just finished a book about Napoleon Bonaparte. It's about 900 pages. Uh, could have been about 200 pages, but anyway. I got through it. After the French Revolution, which is terrible for Christianity, French Revolution produces, in some ways, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, the king has been deposed. Napoleon comes as a, in as a general and starts out with at least the appearance of humility, but by the end of his career, when he's finally deposed and exiled, he ends up being a worse king than France ever had. They wouldn't call himself a king. That's what it was, and it was money. Money and power change people. Let me give you something else to watch out for. Here's some dangers to be aware of. It's down in verse 8. Don't curse the hardship yet. Don't, what you're in, don't curse the hardship yet. Wait. Let let me show it to you in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing. You're not at the end yet. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The better is going to be, the end's going to be better. Don't curse it yet. Need to, need to grasp the hope of a good outcome, or let's say you can't even see a good outcome. I, I think that sometimes is the wrong thing to say, okay, it's just going to be better tomorrow. It actually may never get better. So I think, that, I think false hope is actually no hope at all. I would prefer to, to not put our hope in, in what might be better down the road. <clears throat> I, I would prefer to actually put all of our hope in the, 
the, the all-wise goodness of an all-sovereign God. So you put your hope there. And if you can do that, it uh, really keeps me, it keeps us from, from, from complaining on one side or boasting on the other side. Isn't that what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 14, 12? That there is a way that seems right to a man, but it's... But the end of it, right, is the way of death. Okay, that, that's one way. Flip that proverb over, and the converse is true. There is a way that seems wrong to a man, but in the end, its way is life. And then... Taking all my thunder, Mr. Eglin. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. We're going to get there soon. Romans 8. I hope you like Romans 8 because Romans 9 is going to be tough. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for those that love God. Right? For good for those that love God. James chapter, James chapter 1. James, I'd like to, did I put James 1 in your um, handout? Okay, I'm going to give you a little bonus scripture here. <clears throat> James chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. Let me just read it to you. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Don't, don't curse the hardship yet. Let's move to C. <clears throat> Stay back to Ecclesiastes. Let's move to C. Bitterness. Bitterness is like spiritual asthma. Asthma. Anybody here ever had asthma? I came up with asthma, had it as a small child. Um, I never, I played football from the second grade until I was 22 years old and never one time made a touchdown. I was playing for Mint Hill in the fourth grade and the coach said I could be the fullback that day. And in, in that Saturday uh, morning, getting ready for the game, I had an asthma attack that came to the hospital, get put in the, you know, the little oxygen tent and I missed my chance to ever play offense. Still a little... A little bitter about that. <clears throat> Sometimes when I was preaching, I carried away my early, when I first started, and Connie would have to go over to the house and get the inhaler, bring it back, and I'd take a little bit and then keep preaching. Thankfully, I got old enough, I don't know, it just went away or something. But if you've had asthma and you're breathing, you feel it constricting. You, you still can get some air in, but it feels like you're drowning inside. And this is what bitterness does. It's like spiritual asthma, bitterness is. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for look what anger does. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. That, that word anger, it's anger turned into exasperation. It's the, it's the resentment. It's, it's when Proverbs is written and he talks about um, a wife that's like a constant dripping, how you feel about that, it's anger. It's this simmering. It's not this screaming kind of thing. Bitterness is that which simmers. And it just keeps growing and growing. And, and verse 9 says that, that that anger, what happens is, in a fool, 
anger finds a place to live, lodges there. And with the writer of Hebrews, when he wrote so much about the church, in Hebrews um, 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble. I just want you to just hear it from me. Bitterness is anti-gospel and it's anti-grace. Bitterness in your heart towards someone or someone toward you, it is anti-gospel, it is anti-grace. It's a, it's a prison. I've been trying to memorize Sermon on the Mount. I'm stuck in chapter 6. In chapter 5, remember when uh, Jesus talks about uh, offering your gift at the altar? So when you're offering a gift at the altar and there, remember what? That your brother has something against you. So it's not, oh, you know what, I, I, I have this bitterness in my heart. I need to go and get that right. What Jesus said is when you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First go, then be reconciled to your brother, then you can come to worship. And that's how important that kind of reconciliation is. It's a prison. Let's see. Let me give you a fourth warning. <clears throat> Driving through the rearview mirror wrecks the car. All right? Rearview mirror is good. If you look in the rearview mirror, see where you've been, nine in, check it out. If you're backing down the driveway, that's fine. Look there, but you don't drive your car looking through the rearview mirror. Windshield's bigger, look there, you can see everything. Rearview mirror, if you do that, you can wreck the car. Here's the idea. If you look back all the time and you think you've romanticized how things used to be, how great they were back then, then, then you miss what God has for you here. Right? So, so every single age and time in life, it has its difficulties, but it also has its, its opportunities. So what verse 10 says? Say not, don't say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you're asking this. Not a wise thing. It's an easy thing to do because we can romanticize. I can look back on simple life uh, in Lincoln County, Mississippi, when I pastored a church of 80 people and there weren't so many things going on. And I can stand here and think about how easy it was back then. Truth of the matter is, I had three deacons. Each one of them hated each other. They were starving me and Connie half to death. Uh, it was a dead church with all kinds of immorality. I mean, so you have to be careful, right? How you, how you think about what's behind you. It's what, it's what Israel did, came out of Egypt. Remember when they came out of Egypt and they got in the desert and they started saying, man, remember the great cucumbers we had back there? Forgetting how terrible it was. You, you, can't, you can't face the difficulty of today when you're dreaming about yesterday. So with all of that in mind, I'd like to give you just some practical suggestions for getting stronger. Is that on your sheet? Okay. I guess I should have one of these in my hand the next time I do this. <clears throat> just some, these are all personal things that have helped, just helped me personally. Help me deal pressures of life with 
the stuff we've got to do. The first one is to read Christian history. So that's Christian biography, uh, Christian autobiography. It helps me to look back at people that have run the race and have kept the faith and God saw them through remarkable difficulty. That, is a, that helps me. That's good for my soul. It reminds me God, God has been good in the past, he'll be good in the future, and he'll be good to you. So that's one thing. Another thing that's been helpful to me is to establish some irrevocable disciplines. Put some irrevocable disciplines into your life. There, so much of my life I can't control. There's so many things that go on, I just can't. My day starts when the sun gets up, and when, when things start rolling, it's out of my hands in a lot of ways. That's the way ministry is. You just don't have always a set schedule. So I try to have some, some irrevocable on the early part of the day and the later part of the day. Usually nobody's messing with me at 4.45. Usually. So for a couple, you have an hour and a half or so, maybe two hours there. Uh, and in the evening, sun's gone down, things have quieted. I usually have an hour and a half from 9 to 10.30 or so. Those, those are mentally and spiritually. I try to set some physical, some family, some irrevocable kind of things, disciplines. Here's a third uh, suggestion. Find a way to apply the gospel to everything. What happens is, as evangelicals, oftentimes we take the gospel and we apply it to getting saved. So we put our faith in Jesus, we admit, believe, and confess, and when we become Christians, and we forget that the gospel is not a one-time event, and then, and then we just take everything else and everything else is practical. The gospel is practical. So you... You go and envision the wounds of Jesus bringing healing to you. You see Jesus as your shepherd, as your savior, as your redeemer. You see the, the, the power of the resurrection is going to be the power that, that fuels your prayer. You find ways to take the grace that comes from the cross of Jesus and, and apply that gospel to every part of life. It's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to find ways to do it. But when you start thinking on the gospel... It's going to help you. Here's the fourth thing <clears throat> I found to be helpful. Is to actually ask God for these three things. Ask God for joy. That the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Ask God to give you joy in Christ. Joy in Christ. Ask God to give you strength. Because it's going to be beyond what you can do. So this is going to be not natural, but supernatural. You're asking for God to give you things that you don't possess. Strength. Ask God to give you... The third thing is ask God to give you usefulness. How can I be useful to the cause of Christ in this moment? At, at the office, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, with your family, talking to your nieces, whoever. And then here's the fifth thing. Pray for a brother or sister that is struggling. And since we have so many ways of communicating, if you know how to text, I would say text the prayer. I don't mean, hey, look, I prayed for you today. I mean, what did you actually pray? 
That would mean writing it down. Obviously, the important part is that God hears it. One of the most encouraging things is to actually see what somebody has prayed for me. One of the things, if you, you do that sometime to someone, it's going to be a great encouragement to that person. Practical suggestions for getting stronger. Yes, sir. That's the truth. Hey, Lou, well, I, I imagine we could go around this room and everybody here, raise a hand, add to that list, right? And you're right. I appreciate that. All right, let me pray for you and we'll be dismissed. 7.30, look at the clock. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for the chance to gather with brothers and sisters for just a little while to read the Bible and talk it through. Thank you for the love that we have in the body of Christ. We pray that you'd wake us up tomorrow morning and enough time to spend some time with you and your word. Strengthen us for the day. Protect us from evil. Lead us away from temptation. Bring us back here Sunday ready to worship the one who saved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed.